much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Hey, everybody, this is Unlock You with Dr. Crawford. I am so honored and privileged to be with somebody I've actually followed for quite a while. I am a clinical psychologist, as many of you know, and Dr. Nancy McWilliams is a psychoanalyst, and she's been practicing as a lady, I won't say the age, uh, but for a very long time. And she has been pivotal in a lot of the ways that psychoanalytic work and theory is constructed. Um, and she's just brilliant and kind and relatable. And I have been soaking in a lot of her books. This is Psychoanalytic Case Formulation by Dr. Williams. And she is incredible, a so much wisdom. And while a lot of people may not even know in this audience who that is or what psychoanalysis is, I just want to give you some nuggets from an incredible woman who has been in this field a long time serving and loving people in really strategic and kind ways. And so she's going to just visit with us over a cup of coffee uh, slash actually Zoom, but feeling like we're having coffee with her and just getting some of the gems that she has, um, especially in thinking uh, syst uh, systemically or symbolically, instead of our culture tends to like the microwave approach of things being very reductionistic and um, putting things in little boxes because that lowers our anxiety to feel like we have control and we have a label of something, but it always may not get to the root. And so I think that's where she comes in and being able to help us go to those deeper places where it may even be pre-language. It may be an unconscious process, a dynamic, something that um, we don't have conscious access of. And so there's many of you who've been dealing with anxiety or depression or relationship dynamics, and you've done all the self-help books and those are great. And we're not knocking those, but there is a step deeper to go into those places. And so Nancy, thank you so much for being with us. And it is a privilege and an honor. Thanks for inviting me. I don't know if I can live up to that introduction. But <laughs> yes, yes, you do. You guys, I have three of her books and apparently there's a fourth on its way. So I will ask for a signed copy of that as well. Um, and so Nancy, if somebody was sitting with you and they were saying, you know, I am in these patterns of relationships where they just keep breaking down. I don't know what the issue is. And anytime I try to get feedback, maybe they're not giving it or they just kind of ghost out of my life. What, what would you say as a starting point to help somebody get unlocked in a relationship dynamic that's frustrating? Uh, I first want to understand it in context. You know, what was their early life life? What were the patterns that they kind of overlearned about what relationships are like? Yeah. Um, do they see other people as uh, controlling, as potentially abandoning, as uh, negligent, as abusive, mm -hmm. as uh, sources of support, mm -hmm. as sources of criticism, as sources of love? Um, it, it, it really, we, we all develop our basic relational patterns from our early relationships, and we may consciously be way past those in terms of how we want to be or how we have learned people can be, but they do, in our intimate relationships, uh, tend to rear their heads. They're carried around non-consciously. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if you had a very critical parent, for example, you may find yourself being critical of a partner 
in ways that aren't helpful to the relationships because that's what you learn. Mm-hmm. Or you may find yourself, and usually both of these are the case, expecting criticism from them all the time and you know, trying to ward off possible criticism rather than being more relaxed and fully yourself with them and yeah. able to tolerate a certain amount of the normal criticism that happens between people. So my first um, effort would be to try to understand what their life was like growing up, who the main characters were in mm-hmm. their family of origin, uh, what they were explicitly taught, and, and at the same time, what they witnessed and experienced, because that goes a little deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, something about their religious tradition, mm-hmm. uh, what they were taught in school, sure. um, because those are very central to people's mm-hmm. um, sense of who they are. Yeah. Uh, I would want to know if there's anything they're having trouble telling me, because mm-hmm. that's often the clue to what is the problem in relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychoanalytic tradition, which is a little bit, uh, there are a lot of overlap, but it's a little bit different from some approaches to psychotherapy um, in that it assumes that the main relational patterns that you developed as a kid are going to come up in the therapy itself. Mm-hmm. So I would be listening for, okay, uh, you describe a pattern of um, relationships falling apart because people um, suddenly leave you for reasons you don't understand. Mm-hmm. I would be looking in myself to see if there are any emotional things I'm noticing that uh, would make me inclined to suddenly not want to work with this patient. Mm-hmm. What was I responding to? What 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 was unsaid? Um, how do I understand that in myself? Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't be talking about this necessarily because once I made a connection with a person, I don't leave them. You know, I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't stop therapies unless I think yeah. absolutely nothing is happening and the patient agrees. And that my ethics code requires that I don't keep <laughs> taking money from people who sure. aren't getting any benefit, but that almost never happens. So um, I, I would, first make a commitment for the long-term, but then be very attuned to, is there some way I'm feeling like I want to leave? Or mm-hmm. is that happening in the patient? If that's the main thing they're worried about, that une- inexplicably, somebody's going to abandon me. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to get out first and they don't even know they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Maybe they provoke and because they, they're sure it's going to happen and unconsciously they're provoking it. So at least it's under their control. Yeah. I mean, there are many different possibilities. I'd be trying to yeah. feel that pattern between the patient and me. Absolutely. But it takes a bit. It takes That's a while. So good. Yes. Yes. So I know this may sound <clears throat> basic to some people that your childhood does directly impact your adult relationships. And just as a simple book for like common audience, there's a book called Attached that kind of gives a good example of, hey, some of your childhood family of origin relationship dynamics create templates or a heuristic that you default to. And there's neural networks actually attached to that. That's not just your imagination or psychologist trying to keep you on the couch forever. There's an actual neurophysiology to that as well as just the pattern and the relationship the roles we tend to fall into. So if somebody now goes, huh, okay, so maybe I had kind of an emotionally distant parent. 
So maybe the person didn't leave my family, um, but we're still using the same illustration. Maybe it's somebody who has people that just kind of abandon out of their life and they don't know why. Let's say maybe they have one parent that's kind of overcompensating and they're really in their life. um, And the other one is in their life physically, but not emotionally. And they don't know what to do with that. So now how would we navigate that, do you think? Well, I would first try to find out how they tried to deal with that as a child. Mm-hmm. Because my experience is that people do, they come up with the best possible solution for their particular family. Yeah. You know, maybe for, let's say it was a, uh, an absent or emotionally unresponsive father. Mm-hmm. Maybe what they learned was to be as quiet as a mouse and just be in his presence until he sort of noticed. Okay, that might have been the strategy that worked best for him. Yeah. But if they apply that strategy, and they don't even know they're applying it, they just go on automatic. Yes. If they apply that uh, to a later relationship, they may not get what they want because that relationship may require them to say, mm-hmm. listen, I, I'm feeling a little bit neglected right now. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe their father couldn't tolerate that, but it, but, and, and that they did their best as a kid. But, so I would want to know what is the pattern of the adults and what was the solution? Mm-hmm. And if they keep trying that same solution, not even being aware that they're doing that, yeah. if we could name that, then they get some conscious control over, oh, there's possibly another solution here. And they'll find that they're feeling anxious when they apply the new solution because it would have gotten them into worse trouble as a kid. Mm -hmm. And a lot of psychotherapy is helping people face fears at a rate they can tolerate. Mm -hmm. So that would be the work. Yeah. And then, so again, making things conscious, we call that new insight and then the Mm -hmm. corrective experience. And I think a lot of our culture is missing that part where we think if we understand something cognitively that I have mastery over it and I should just know better. So I know better, Mm -hmm. I do better. And that's a common expression I hear people use and they kind of beat themselves up thinking, well, I know better. I know that. And yet I keep doing it anyway. What's that process look like of actually working through or gaining a corrective experience in something? rather than just thinking that mental ascent alone will change a dynamic that's so deeply enrooted? That's a really good question because so many of us beat ourselves up. I know I should Mm -hmm. be, but I find myself being. Yes, exactly. Um, So (laughs) the reason that you can't change, and, and this has been known for more than 100 years and ever since we've had psychotherapy is there's a difference between intellectual knowledge and emotional knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now we understand this more in terms of neuroscience between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Yes. The amygdala, the the more primitive part of your brain is always sending up signals like, you can't do this, it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the corrective experience is slowly to find that it's not dangerous, but you can't do that just by mental fiat. Yes. You know, if, if you have, for example, a tendency to overeat, you know that it's not going to help you to say, you know, you should not have dessert. You just should not have dessert. You look away and your right hand suddenly <laughs> is cake in your mouth. You know? so <laughs> because true. your amygdala is saying, you can't live without that cake. <laughs> so it takes a long time to interrupt 
those um, processes. And what happens in psychotherapy is that uh, the patient is encouraged to slowly try to interrupt them with people in the world outside, but also in the therapy itself, it's a safe place to do that. So let's take the example that came up before. Let's say somebody has learned that the best way to prevent your father being even more distant is to, is to be quiet as a mouse, never complain, never show that something hurt your feelings. Okay, let me and, pause you. So the audience, that's called codependence. <laughs> some common pop psychology for any of you listening that are like, well, she's really brilliant. I'm tracking with half of what she's saying. Um, and that's called codependence, where you're showing up the part of you you think other people are going to love or accept, but there's no true intimacy there. So keep going, quiet as a mouse. Just want to make sure. We're okay, trying. so I'm, I'm, I'm the therapist now, and I'm noticing that the patient never says anything critical of me. Mm -hmm. you know, that's not humanly possible. Everybody wants help faster than they can get it in therapy. Everybody feels like, mm -hmm. you know, how come you're not helping me faster? Mm -hmm. Or you were five minutes late starting the session that irritated me. Mm -hmm. Or um, I don't like the fact that you ended the last session when I was in the middle of something important. These things are universal negative feelings about the process of therapy. And if that never comes up, I start noticing that. And I will bring up to the patient, you know, you've never complained about anything. I, I think last session, I hurt your feelings when I said this, because I saw pain across your face. Were you conscious of that? Usually they'll put their, you know, they'll look a little bit uncomfortable, but they'll say yes, if, you know, if I've been at all intuitive. And then I start getting interested in what made it hard for you to say that. I've tried to encourage you to say everything here. Well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Um, well, tell me more about that. What's the fantasy? That will tend to go back to, well, if I said that to my father, all hell would break loose. It would make things worse. Yeah. So the first part of working through is the emotional experience of they're getting brave enough to say, you know, I, I really was hurt by what you said. Yes. And then doom does not fall. Mm -hmm. And they are learning something at an emotional level. They're not just telling themselves, she told me to say everything. What's the matter with me mm -hmm. that I, I'm not saying this? You, know, you have to slowly uh, get at the emotional experience and behave differently. Yeah. And yeah. then have it come out right. That's Absolutely. the emotional learning yeah. part the messy of trial and error of yeah. figuring it out and as we go. It's inevitable that you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of psychotherapy and the recent analytic psychotherapy literature is all about this. It's about rupture and repair of relationships mm -hmm. because yeah. therapists, as you know, as a therapist yourself, yes. we get pulled into yes. the patient's repetitive drama and we find ourselves acting either as the patient did as a child or as their caregivers did when they were little exactly. and we don't know how we got there because it's not our usual way of acting but it's because of all the unconscious mm -hmm. emotional um uh, inducements exactly. and so we find ourselves saying something that would be let's say more let's say in the case of the distracted father we find ourselves distracted and we act out exactly what the patient is afraid of Yes. Then we have to apologize, mm -hmm. go back, 
um, and repair it yeah. in ways that the father was not able to do. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I got distracted. You must have felt the same way you did as a kid when you wanted your father's attention and he just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so sorry. What was it like for me to go there and let them express the things that they couldn't have said in childhood. There's a misunderstanding of psychoanalytic therapy that it's all about blaming your parents. (laughs) It's really not. It's about, it it eventuates in your understanding them with much more compassion than you originally did. Absolutely. And it's not about taking what you learn in therapy and going back and criticizing them. It's about redoing what happened in a new relationship and coming to accept that they did the best they could. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's another one of those things where you can say that to yourself from your intellectual mind. Well, they did the best they could. I know they did the best they could. Um, uh, If that doesn't tend to help if it's just intellectual. Exactly. So you have to come to a deeper kind of forgiveness that only comes from feeling like you were misunderstood in certain ways. Yeah. It's not their fault, but you felt it. And those feelings have to be processed and they have to be processed in a relationship where you can name them and say them safely. Mm. And I love the premise that a relationship wound requires a relationship healing. So many times we try to work on stuff in isolation and it's great. I have new cognition about that. I have a new label. I can tell everybody, oh, I used to be a perfectionist or codependent, or I used to be critical parent or whatever dynamic, but I'm still going to do it because classical conditioning and automaticity the brain will still default back to what's most basic and primitive form of what I learned. So like if I'm trying to learn Spanish and I've read a lot of books, but I don't do any immersion work into a Spanish speaking culture, I'm immediately going to go back to English. That is my first language. That's the first one that was imprinted into my brain. And for many of us, our relationship dynamics are so entrenched that we get really frustrated at ourselves thinking I've worked so hard on this but it's also because I haven't let somebody else into that relationship dynamic to now create that corrective experience or that new classical conditioning. Like you're saying that now somebody can experience saying a criticism and it not being attacked and being able to give feedback and feeling like it was safe and actually brought more intimacy rather than uh, distance and isolation. Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. The, The language analogy, it's very much like that. And I, I work with many people who are very smart about what they think is wrong with them, but they are so stymied about making headway with it. And that just makes it worse because then they hate themselves. They beat themselves up. Yes. Um, a lot of psychotherapy is about coming to acceptance of things mm-hmm. uh, that aren't always changeable, but that you can become more compassionate about and have much more range for dealing with than you you did growing up. Yeah, that's so good. So could you talk maybe a little bit about how we can even hook people into relationships? You were talking about it a little bit, but I want to dive a little deeper into it that sometimes, so we are modeled, we see the parent. So let's say um, in our vignette that it's a kind of a mom who's maybe a little bit enmeshed, kind of that classic helicopter mom who wants to make sure nothing bad happens. And then this emotionally distant father, and it could be a thousand other scenarios, but that's just the one that came off the top of my head. Um, Okay. 
in that situation, I am simultaneously modeling those parent models and I can vacillate and go between them in my relationships with others, but I'll still feel like the child and not realize the way I may be actually hooking people into some of those dynamics. Can you help our audience understand that and unpack that a little deeper for us? You mean you're asking about why do people find themselves inadvertently recreating exactly what they're trying so hard not yes, to do? Where we reenact the dynamic in our present relationships. And and your question is how how do we as therapists help it help them get some purchase on that and make it come out differently? Sure. Just the concept itself. For a lot of my clients, they just perpetually feel like, why does this keep happening to me? Why does Uh, this keep happening to me? Instead of realizing, well, partly there may be an unconscious dynamic where you're actually hooking people into reenacting some of those dynamics without realizing it uh, because you're feeling like the child, but maybe you're also being the critical parent to that person or you're being emotionally distant, even though you feel like they're the ones distancing. If this is a common theme in your life, maybe we need to unpack that a little deeper yeah you in my experience you have to feel it in the relationship as a therapist Mm -hmm. and name it there in a non-critical way Mm -hmm. Uh, and it takes time because otherwise people feel blamed for it you know if they've been victimized for example and abused Uh, If they've behaved in a way that's endangered themselves because unconsciously they think everybody's abusive and they're provoking the abuse to get it over with, which is a dynamic that you sometimes see. I want you to pause there because that's so key. I think there's a lot of people that need to hear that. Could you say that again, that wanting the abuse to get over with, we're provoking it, that part? Well, if you're sure that someone else is going to mistreat you, Mm -hmm. um, if, for example, you've been sexually used in some traumatic way. It's a tragic reality that people with that history tend to provoke sexualized relationships Mm -hmm. that that are often exploitive or abusive. And it's not because they want that. It's not because they're to blame so much as their expectations have a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, um, one of the unconscious dynamics is I know this is going to happen anyway. And the only way it will be even remotely tolerable is if I feel I have some control about when, where, and with whom it happens. Mm -hmm. So there may be an unconscious provocation there. And the therapeutic problem, as you I'm sure know, is that it's hard to get to that without the patient feel like you're blaming them. Right. You know, you're blaming the victim for being victimized, you know, so it, it takes a while before they can internalize that you in general aren't blaming, that you're just um, curious, and it will come through the relationship. For example, um, I'm working with a really lovely man who is having ter- terrible anxiety, and he wakes up at three in the morning, and um, he's in a panic. Mm. And he wakes up his wife and she's getting exhausted. Mm. And this man has many reasons to feel this terrible anxiety. Mm. He was almost a feral child. His parents paid him no attention at all. And his mother in, in particular was very um, selfish, self-involved, left him alone for long periods of time, was interested in how much money she could 
spend and how she looked to her friends, you know, we would call her very narcissistic. And um, he was able to pick a wife who was very different from that, which I think shows just how much health he had, because a lot of us keep, we're unconsciously attracted to people who are like our original objects because we want to make it work better this time. Yes. But he actually was able to, to choose someone different, but he was exhausting her. And most of my conversation with him up till the, a certain point had been um, about how he was expecting other people to be um, narcissistic toward him, to be arrogant, to use him, to not really care about him the way the parents had. But in this instance, it struck me that he was doing that to his wife. He was acting like an entitled parent who could wake up another person at any time and expect that they, they would put his anxiety ahead of their need to sleep or any other kind of need. So I asked him, you know, what makes it automatic for you to wake her up? Because I'm worried that you're exhausting her. And he said, well, I've earned all the money in our relationship and I work very hard and all of this self-justification came out. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I guess there's a little bit of your narcissistic mother in you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we had a good enough, re he was taken aback, but he realized he was acting like uh, an entitled, arrogant, you, you, you're supposed to serve me. You're not supposed to take care of your own needs. Mm -hmm. um, but by that time, we had a good enough relationship that I could tease him a little bit when I saw that he had internalized the, the parent, not just the child who was trying to deal with that parent. So that can't easily happen in a regular relationship. You need the safety of a professional relationship mm -hmm. to be able to tease somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think one, go ahead. one occupational hazard of therapists is that we tend to interpret to our partners instead of just say what we think and feel. <laughs> yeah. My husband and I have a rule. We have to ask permission. You know, I have an idea about why you might be doing that. Do I have your permission to tell <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you know, it's too painful to hear from somebody that you live with <laughs> that, um, yeah they're having a particular effect on you. Absolutely. And I love this illustration of how I can simultaneously feel like I am the child, I'm the victimized one, this is happening to me, and mm -hmm. not realize perhaps some of that modeling, that first language for me would be English. And some families, it would be, you know, narcissism or neglect or um, very unstable liability and emotion. So any of those dynamics could be played out. And I have no idea that my normal, my familiar is actually wounding and replicating a lot of those dynamics that hurt me and make me feel sad, but I would need to actually grow to the place, what we would call ego strength, that I'm able to realize that without being destroyed by it. And yeah. how hard is that for many of us to see our own, our own stuff when I want to tell the story based on being the victim versus, oh gosh, I'm now responsible for my role in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very subtle, you know, uh, not immediate thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not a matter of a quick solution, a quick, quick way of thinking about it that'll turn it around. Yeah. Yeah. And it does involve pain. Mm. Which I've found most of our culture is phobic of pain. 
that we want to do anything we can to avoid actually feeling the pain. And so we'll overeat, we'll oversex, we'll overshop, we'll overwork, we'll over whatever, so that I don't have to feel that. And we can over self-help, so self-analyze to the point that I've so intellectualized, which just means bringing everything into the intellect so that I've totally sanitized the emotion of how I'm actually feeling with that event or experience in the present or in the past. And obviously the interplay of how those are happening at the same time, sometimes in our current relationships. Yeah, I think this culture is not deeply reflective of painful internal feelings. And yet it's so important, the grief process. Mm-hmm. is essentially the process through which we come to terms with painful reality. Mm-hmm. And life is inevitably painful. We never get everything we want. We can't be perfect. That's an illusion. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, we have um, qualities that are not always so attractive that we have to come to terms with. Yes. Um, we, get, we get hurt. You, know? mm-hmm. you, you, you were very... Uh, coy about my age. I'm 75 years old and I don't want to age, but I don't have a choice about it. But if, you know, it doesn't do me any good to say, you know, everybody ages, you know, everybody dies. What's the matter with you that you object to this? Uh, I have to be on friendly terms with the part of me that says, um, you know, I, I really wish I weren't going to die. Mm-hmm. It's painful. Yeah. Uh, I've lost a lot of people to death in my life. In every case, I felt, you know, first objection and then guilt and then anger and pain. But there's a grief process that you go through. And at the end, you're not tormented anymore. It's just, yeah, life is hard, but it's sweet. Yeah. And you aren't going to get the highs if you can't let yourself go through the lows. Absolutely. That's so- and I think grief process is nature's way of helping us do that. And we're not very good at this, at grief in this culture. Absolutely. If you're in a religious group, you're a little bit more likely to have rituals and Mm -hmm. um, communal supports Mm -hmm. for a mourning process. But uh, in American secular society, you're supposed to um, push on, keep a stiff upper lip uh, Mm -hmm. and keep yourself busy. Which really and is it'll it'll sometimes be possible to do that, but at a cost. Yeah. What do you think might be some of those costs that we don't realize are they bargaining for? While we're avoiding pain, we may be adding what? Well, we we are missing out on authenticity, on feeling deeply moved, yeah. on feeling really deeply close to another person. If if we can let ourselves grieve in the presence of another person, which is a lot of what happens in psychotherapy, mm-hmm. um, we feel deeply connected in a way that we don't if we're just trying to be good or trying to function or trying you know, the solutions that worked for us in our childhood. So you mentioned intimacy before. I think that's the big payoff. Yeah. Not to mention the tolerance of the coexistence of good and bad in the self and others. Yeah. And a real genuine emotional tolerance of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it was a psychoanalytic, uh, psychoanalytic psychologist that looked at me and said, you have a lot of pain inside. And I was like, no, I don't. I have done all of these prayer and therapy and healing and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, that's nice. I still see a lot of pain inside of you. <laughs> like, 
that's great. I'm glad you've done all of those things. They've probably helped you, um, but that you've never actually mourned and grieved some of those things that you've had insight about. And again, full circle, I feel like I'm on like a little soapbox here. I'm like, Hey culture, if you're not grieving, if you're not going to those places of pain, there's literally parts of you that are stuck and not able to emerge. So we talk about restoring self-cohesion of bringing all parts of you back into conscious awareness. And when we don't grieve, we are literally leaving parts of us regressed or um, hidden from awareness, but it's going to leak out. So it's like having white noise and anger and disappointment, powerlessness, and that blocks intimacy. Self-righteousness and criticism. Oh, yeah. Stuff that alienates. Mm -hmm. So if we take full circle, that story we started at the beginning. So if you're somebody who has really struggled in relationships or even just your own mood, maybe there's some places of pain that you haven't allowed yourself to go to. And that can be the hardest thing to do. And I do recommend that you do it in relationship. Um, not everybody needs to go to a psychotherapist, although obviously yeah. you're talking to two that very much believe in it. Um, but if you have pretty good internal resources and relationships around you and you can connect into a healthy relationship that would help you walk that out, it'll get messy, it'll get hard. But if you do it well, there is a corrective experience that then allows permission to previously denied or disavowed parts of you to finally be um, a part of that kaleidoscope of beauty of all these facets of who you're intended to be. So if you're looking around saying, why does this keep happening to me? Whatever this is, it could be a relationship, mood, job failures, frustration of things not working out. Maybe it's time to start reflecting, what am I replicating? Is there something mm-hmm. where, like, um, I know some people that if they really struggle with time management, maybe yeah. it's a symbolic way to say, I have power. You don't get to tell me when to leave and when to go, right? Because so many kids struggle with a parent saying, come on, let's go. And they're always on this time frame. So mm-hmm. there's lots of symbolic ways that these dynamics can be played out. And if we become more thoughtful and we think symbolically, which is the hardest thing for many of my clients to do and myself, because I'm so literal and I've been conditioned in a very Western world to think very, um, uh, you know, putting things in boxes, we'd called schema, but you're putting things in boxes and everything's very linear. And this makes sense. And I had a father like this. So now I do this and blah, blah, blah. And I've moved on. I already analyzed that. I know that but I've never <laughs> actually healed from it. Many of you listening have some places of pain and there's some healing that's required in order to actually get that corrective experience so that your soul is not kind of carrying that broken leg in the unconscious and you're doing the best you can to muscle and power through and life doesn't have to be that hard. This is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Williams, Nancy, um, it's so fun to call you Nancy because I've been reading your books for so long and influenced by you for so long. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the Brookhaven Institute of Psychoanalysis and Christian Theology, uh, IPACT. That's how I was first introduced to Nancy McWilliams. Uh, they are phenomenal and I cannot recommend them highly enough. Their uh, training program is fantastic. So in our last couple five minutes, what would you say to somebody who is maybe nervous about going to those places of pain and the possibility of being destroyed or going into depression and never coming out in this kind of phobic response? Would you give any hope or kind of tools to help people feel like there's vision through the storm? Yes. 
um, <laughs> the only way out is through. Um, but I think um, as, as a therapist, what I would do is to reassure the patient, we will do this at your pace. Mm -hmm. um, but I might also engage with whatever the fantasy is there that you'll, you'll, you'll go into uh, an abyss that you'll never be able to climb out of. Mm -hmm. um, they won't go into that abyss alone. Yeah. And they, they will just take it step by step. Mm -hmm. And every time they go deeper, they'll also get better. You know, in other words, it, it's not linear. You know, mm -hmm. as you work in psychotherapy, you, you can sometimes feel worse for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're developing new capacities. And it doesn't mean that you're on a path forever down toward uh, doom. Yes. And, I, and I'll just engage with that. And I will ask the patient, what is, tell me more about your fear that this is going to do damage. And usually there's some reason that they, they feel that way that makes perfect sense from the point of view of how they grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, it's a matter of really um, engaging with what's their deepest fantasies, thoughts, feelings, and trying to make them comfortable talking about that. Um, I, I know of a couple of uh, academics that were very afraid to get psychotherapy because they had an intellectual understanding that it was their crazy parts that moved them so passionately in the direction that they went into. And they were afraid that if they dismantled their crazy parts in psychotherapy, they would have no more um, passion for their work. They would have no more interest in their formative ideas. Yeah. And those people, I can confidently tell, it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You become better at what you're passionately interested in yes. rather than um, having that taken away from you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that the more that we can interject, which just means take somebody else in as a corrective relationship template. So whether it's a therapist or a pastor, a friend, um, your healthy relationship with God, any of those internal constructs can now give a template of how you can now treat yourself. So a big part of that struggle is when we're going to those places of pain, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose the creative or the crazy parts, or I'm afraid afraid I'm going to go in this deep despair and depression and never come out. Whatever the fantasy, when she uses fantasy, a lot of our culture thinks uh, sexualized. It just means the imagination, the catastrophe, whatever we're contemplating, we think is going yeah. to happen, what we're projecting. And uh, just because our culture tends to think only in sexual terms on that word. Um, so whenever That's the bizarre thing about our culture, there's yes. no room for imagination. <laughs> yes. Um, so when somebody is in that place, one of the best things you can do is start cultivating a relationship towards yourself to be empathic and attunement and validating to start being an internal resource for yourself. I know that sounds weird, but in reality, healthy people do this all the time. They, it's just so familiar. They don't realize they're doing it. All of us talk to ourselves, you know, like I want the chocolate cake, but I want to lose weight. Uh, where did I put my keys? What's wrong with me? 
you know, all of us do that. And I remember the shift in my own life um, that I used to cut. I used to do a lot of like self-harm and destructive patterns. And I remember the day that all of this now was finally conscious. And I was, it was like in my imagination, um, every part of me was like, well, these are tools we've done before. It wasn't a compulsion. It wasn't a impulse. It was more like an offering of tools. And then I had this awareness of like, or I could choose because now it was conscious instead of an unconscious process I was driven toward. And I saw in my imagination that I leapt across this little boardroom table and jumped in the arms of Jesus. And I just felt this satiety, like my soul was at peace. So all these times I had been turning to some form of avoidance, something to try to make me feel better, whether it was cutting or eating disorder or uh, chasing a relationship, any of those things all ended up being empty and left me in a place of stuckness. But when in my imagination, I just saw this picture of like this little girl version of me running into the arms of Jesus. And when I felt that uh, repair, right? So we talk about rupture of relationships being broken. And then for Jesus, for me in that moment to be like, hey, this can take as long as you need. I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. And it was such a healthy internal construct that I was, I could literally feel GABA or oxytocin. Those are just the happy chemicals like cuddling um, released in my physical body because in my imagination, I believed it was real and I could feel that shift. So for anybody out there that you've really relied on maybe fear or control, I'm not going to go to those places of pain. I'm going to keep willpowering myself through it, you're actually blocking intimacy in a lot of areas with yourself, with others, with a lot of your creativity that could be opened even more. And if you have a faith system, there is a relationship that you could have that could help foster intimacy and a corrective experience, even internally. And to hear my own voice toward myself say, Hey, Shannon, take your time. You don't have to rush through this. And I just felt this internal resource of how, because I had spent so much time with healthy people, then it helped um, help me to see God through a healthy lens. And then that helped me develop a healthy relationship toward myself. And now it's like, I don't really need those coping mechanisms that I was using before that our culture pushes so much, just get people coping mechanisms as if we have to stay in pain all the time and just keep doing the crutches the rest of our life. It's fine for a season, but I want to restore hope that if you stay in this journey and you find the right relationship, it might be a psychotherapist. It might not be whatever your journey is. It may be organic to your life and what you're able to do. You don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to keep walking on crutches. There is hope. And as much as the fantasy of it's going to be terrible, I'm going to go into depression. I'm never going to come out. That's not actually reality. When you put healthy relationships and infrastructure inside of yourself. So be mindful of even how you're talking and relating to yourself because you're going to be the critical parent or the emotionally distant, unavailable parent toward yourself in your own self-talk, which then replicates and keeps that trauma active and alive, even in the present, releasing those neurochemicals in the present as if it's happening right now because you do have a relationship with yourself. So I want to thank Dr. McWilliams. She is incredible. Nancy, you are a gift. Um, I just wish I could have 17 hours to just sit and like glean from you and hear case studies. So how can somebody connect with you if they want to either to have you speak or write or be your therapist? I'm sure you're probably full on your caseload, but how can somebody connect with you? Well, my caseload is full and my speaking 
schedule is pretty full too, but I do answer my email. Um, I might say no to the request, but they can easily get me. It's nancymcw at aol.com. So I'm easy to find. Oh, and I can vouch. I didn't know her personally. Um, I knew her by reputation and sitting in some of her talks, but uh, she did respond to an email and she has been so lovely and gracious. Thank you for your time. I know you're probably on a vacation in the woods in a cabin somewhere and you've taken out this time to just invest in me and our audience. And we are eternally grateful. Thank you, Nancy. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Unlock You and we'll see you for the next one. Love you guys. Hey friends, thanks for listening. We would love for you to get plugged in with the Unlock You community. So follow the links below and stay up to date with upcoming content, events, and groups. We are here to invest in you and tailor episodes around your interests. Post comments, and hey, if there are any specific topics you'd like to hear about, let us know so we can strategically build content that is meaningful to you. And will you share this podcast so we can invest into more amazing people? Be sure to hit subscribe so we can see you for the next episode.